just checking on Adobe Audition. No, I'm not clipping. Okay, let's get to the show notes and let's get this party started. Sorry, let me see. Is that better? Is that good? That's that's probably good. All right, I think we're good. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure, the podcast where we discuss solutions to the climate crisis. I'm your host for this episode, Oscar Archibald. And I'm your co-host, Isham Kanan. Today, we're going to be talking about tech and its impact on the environment. We're excited to discuss planned obsolescence, e-waste, and right to repair, amongst other fascinating topics. So as a little introduction, let me tell you first the story of the light bulb conspiracy. So, when electric light bulbs were first invented, some designs could essentially run forever. They had a very strong filament and no moving parts, so it made sense that they could stand the test of time. If you think about the sort of things that generally cause appliances to break, such as a mixer might break because, you know, the moving part gets gradually worn worn down until it just snaps off. But with a light bulb, the only real part that can wear down is the filament, unless you break the glass, of course. And so once Anderson had gone through his like thousand filaments that didn't work and he found this one that did work, I think it was made of tungsten, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and this filament could last just so, so long. So initially, this would have been good for the people who are making these light bulbs, the light bulb manufacturers. They made tons of money. Everyone wanted to buy them because they were really high-quality products. However, once everybody had all the light bulbs they needed for all the rooms in their house, plus, plus plenty to spare, this, is a, this became a problem for the people manufacturing the light bulbs because suddenly all their business dried up. Because if you, give, if you sell something to everyone, but then once people have got that one thing of that product, they never need to replace it, once you've saturated the market, there's really nowhere for your business to go, especially if, if your only expertise is in manufacturing these light bulbs. So ultimately, this was a massive problem for the light bulb manufacturers. So in an attempt to fix this, the light bulb manufacturers got together in what is essentially a cartel, something of a consortium, and they strictly enforced rules amongst their members to make sure that their light bulbs died artificially after a certain number of hours, typically a thousand hours. Members who violated these rules were punished for this. So they got together and all agreed to make sure that they specifically put time and money into making sure that their products were worse than they both originally were and than they could be. Bit ridiculous, right? Not a bit ridiculous, very ridiculous. To this day, light bulbs need to be replaced fairly often. And with the advent of LED lighting, which works completely different to, differently to the sort of filament bulbs that we we're talking about at the beginning. Filament bulbs, you pass a current through what is essentially a resistive element that gives a whole lot of light, but also mostly heat. Whereas LED lights are much more efficient and instead it, it works by passing, I, I don't really know this that well, but you pass a current over a semiconductor and that causes electrons to like jump and, and, or, like, or photons to be emitted. Uh, sorry, that's not a very technical explanation, but hopefully you get the idea across that LEDs don't produce nearly as much heat. They still do produce heat, they still do need heat sinks, but it's far, far more efficient However, because they're made of this semiconductor material, it means the LEDs are much harder to uh, dispose of properly, whereas a filament is just, you know, tungsten in a bulb, and the bulb is probably filled with argon so as not to oxidize the tungsten or anything like that. Whereas with the LEDs, it's this complex sort of e-waste, and that means it's an even bigger problem when the company is artificially limiting the lives of the LEDs. Also, because LEDs are this new product, uh, companies playing off people's expectations of light bulbs to die, when in fact LEDs are a technology that could probably last even longer. Um, so again, a problem. Um, and finally, there's this, there's this great um, example or proof of the fact that light bulbs could have lasted forever, could have, if not for this cartel, which is that there's this fire station in California 
where there's a light bulb that has been on continuously since the year 1901. That's pretty crazy. That's more than a thousand hours. This was the first example of planned obsolescence, but it certainly wasn't the last. If you're interested in this topic, we made an episode on LEDs um, with an electrical engineer friend of mine. There's also linked in the show notes a video by Veritasium, which explains in more depth the light bulb conspiracy. There's also a documentary on the topic, which is a bit longer if you're interested in that. All the links are in the show notes. From Generation, this is Fighting Failure, episode 35. Let's move on to the problems. So, the first issue, and this is probably one of the most egregious, is things that are deliberately made shoddy. So, um, the first example that might come to some people's mind is accusations of Apple. There was a scam, it wasn't really a scam, was it? But a few years ago, there was this massive scandal called Battery Gate. You know, all scandals have to be called Gate. Not exactly sure why, but I would love to learn. Um, where Apple was accused of deliberately slowing down older devices purportedly so that then people would want to move from their artificially slowed um, old devices to new devices from Apple to make Apple more of the, the you know, the money. Um, exactly, to, to keep keep fulfilling their requirement as a company to, to keep growing um, in spite of what might actually be their consumer's best interest. Uh, if, you, if you don't know already, um, most public companies or all public companies and most companies in general are legally required to act in the interest of their shareholders. And obviously the interest of those shareholders is for the share price to go up, which means that Apple's company, its sales and everything needs to grow continuously. So that that is their primary objective in doing business is to grow, is to make money for the people that own stock in Apple. Um, so I think the battery gate scam was a bit overblown. Apple's response seemed reasonable, which is that they were saying they were slowing down devices to improve battery life, which in fact increases the longevity of the older devices. Nevertheless, people find that this is sort of a breach of, you know, they bought this device and they want it to function how it, how it should have when it was originally made and not with some sort of artificial restrictions on how the software can perform. Um, for example, maybe it would have just been better to allow cheap battery repairs and keep the, the good software. Uh, anyway, another example from Apple is that Apple's first generation iPod was found to be designed so that the battery deliberately fails prematurely. So this is, I think, much more egregious than slowing down software purportedly for their for their to save battery because they've, they've just deliberately designed this so that people would want to upgrade. Um, and I think that's that sort of terrible business practices and that feels very unethical to me at least and I think it would to most people. Um, obviously then people need to buy the, the new iPod and that makes Apple double the money. So that's I, I think that's very egregious. Obviously another example is those light bulbs we talked at the start but we've, we, well, we've talked about Apple a lot but honestly Apple is one of the best in terms of their planned obsolescence and things. We'll talk about this later, but they offer updates for longer than any other brand. And also their products tend to be designed with a lot more quality materials. Um, and they and they put efforts into more and more. They're trying to be more repairable. I still really can't give them that much credit for that because what they're doing is pretty basic stuff. But they also have like their scratch resistant sort of casing and that sort of, that sort of idea. So honestly, most other brands tend to be a lot worse in, in their overall environmental credentials, both in terms of how long their devices last for, how easy it is to repair because they're smaller brands, as well as how long how long they provide updates for, um, and and all of those sort of things. It's it's even worse. For example, I have a what's what's basically quite a niche Android phone. You know, it's, it's fairly cheap, but um, once it stops receiving updates, and I honestly it might have stopped already, 
I can't get updates for, from it anymore, and I'm just going to. That's a security risk then to keep it without updates. But also, if it broke, like I doubt that there's going to be any replacement parts anywhere for it. Like I can't even. It's very difficult to find even a case or a screen protector on Amazon for this because it's so rare. Whereas Apple, you know, you can go and get an unofficial repair from a store just because um, it's so popular that lots of people are making these replacement parts. Uh, not, not, it's not actually like Apple's doing, um, but that that does mean that Apple products are on on the positive side in terms of all tech. Um, obviously, uh, this goes without saying, but the best phone for the environment or the best tech for the environment is the tech you already have. Because no matter the environmental credentials of the company you're buying from, um, the best thing to do is not buy something new and to make your devices last as long as possible. And I mean, the companies, what they do as well is they find ways to trick you into purchasing new products. So one thing that Apple does is if you have a phone, so I have an 8SE iPhone, and if I trade my phone in now, I get whatever, something like a $300 discount or a $400 discount on the newest phone, which when it first comes out is something like $1,000. It's like really expensive, right? So they try and get you into this headspace of, well, you know, this phone, it's, it's like three, four years old. It, it'll eventually go bad. So why don't I just get rid of it now and get a discount on my new phone, which I would have gotten in the future anyway. But then what you end up doing is you end up throwing away perfectly good phone material and you end up putting more pressure on them to produce more phones and they're getting more money because they're get like they're getting more money in the present because they're getting more c- consumers um, on a daily basis. And also, I mean, if you look at the margin of profit, even when they give you that discount, it's very large and they've calculated that um, beforehand. They've calculated that margin for profit to know that if they give you a 25% discount, a 30% discount, they're still going to be making a lot of money off your purchase. So it, it's all planned. And it, it, you have to understand this is, is that they've set all these very well, well laid out traps um, to catch you. Yeah. If you look at Apple's website, they make it look like they're doing you a service. And if your device isn't supported by any of our trading, we'll give you, um, we'll recycle it for free. Like, how nice are we? But actually what you're doing them is you're giving them a, a very valuable device with a lot of precious metals, um, with gold in it. It's got a, a lot of stuff that can be recovered. It's got an aluminum casing. So actually, like, sending it, we'll send it to us and we'll recycle it for free. You're just giving them, like, straight up money if you're giving them a, a device that isn't supported by their trading scheme. But we'll talk about later predatory trading schemes is on the list. But I think the last thing that is made surely deliberately, but this sort of it's sort of a gray line is just about everything on Amazon made by these small Chinese brands with not much name recognition made out of, you know, crappy, brittle injection molded plastic. You could say that it's, it's sort of blending the line with the next point, which is without think stuff's not necessarily made surely deliberately without attention to detail, which is a slightly different thing. I think that just about everything on Amazon sort of falls in between those two, which is that they're deliberately not actually putting in the, the small amount of efforts required to make a product a bit better and instead just deliberately choosing to go down the route of making a bad product. So, I mean, the whole way that, that the market is designed is that right, these producers, they want to produce um, a product in the cheapest way possible and they want to make the most amount of profit off the product as possible. So they'll look for ways to make their product look really good and then they'll look for ways to cut costs on the production of their product. And this 
is a problem. And this is why you have so many poor quality products that are coming from all over the world. And it's because companies want to cut costs and make profit. And that's how this whole uh, market is driven is, is by profit and how much profit you can make off, off low um, production costs. Exactly. And, and uh, it's also one of the things that cost cutting is a, is a recent innovation. The sort of things that we see in cost cutting, like shoddy materials, the designers isn't very thought out, weak electrical components and wires. It, it's actually a, a, because of the recent ability for low cost manufacturing, thanks to materials such as plastic, which are brittle, but also cheap. It means that many companies now will cut costs where they previously weren't actually physically able to. Because historically, it just this option for cutting costs like so broadly didn't really exist because you could it wasn't feasible to move uh, factories to China. It, it wasn't feasible to construct things out of plastic because plastic wasn't invented yet or discovered yet. I don't really know which you'd classify it as, but probably invented. It's also worth keeping in mind that stuff that looks nice or comes from brands with name recognition isn't necessarily not being cost cut isn't necessarily sound because corners can still be cut john lucas who was in the episode about leds helped me to uh with some finer points in this episode because he has a bit more expertise in this area um and so obviously we're both quite obsessed with trains so he's given an example of this which is the new uk class 800 high-speed hitachi trains these really nice trains they run on the great western railway they look they look really nice they're really nice to ride in but uh, um, apparently in comparison with the 1970s much older obviously 50 years old at this point class 43 hst trains high-speed trains um, I wonder if that's a bit of a bit pointless to say HST trains. Anyway, apparently those old ones were equally functional and high speed, um, but they've just been replaced because it looks nicer. Um, and But these potentially these new train sets aren't actually as good. Another example that he's given for this is that built-in fixtures and fittings inside new buildings are just built a lot more shoddily. So if you think about um, automatic blinds, coffee machines, fridges, kitchens, doors, wardrobes, all these things that are built into the house rather than just being put on a, on a counter. Um, and he said that when, when he's compared the old and new equivalents, for example, his grandparents' kitchen versus his own, it's not only is there just general cost-cutting, more shoddy uh, workmanship, but also that the, the crazier thing, which brings us very nicely onto the next point, which is that we have an expectation that these fixtures and fittings are consumable, that they will break at some point, when in the past you would have thought that they're there and they're there to stay. I mean, prices also go down with time, and, and this is something as well as that they, they might not even, in sometimes they might not necessarily have to drive down, uh, they, might not, they might not cut the prices which you're paying for their products, but simultaneously the, the, the prices of what they're using to produce your products are becoming cheaper and cheaper. And this is something that's happening as well as like plastic went from initially being, you know, quite expensive to now being worth nothing. It's, it's like, there's plastic everywhere. It's it's worth absolutely nothing, and so I mean the the use of products just over time as they become more and more common um, is driving down the the cost for production, but then they're keeping that the the you know cost of purchase at the same level, which is also of course a problem for the consumers because they're paying more than they should be for their products. Yeah, that's called shrinkflation. I think. In, in a way, or one example of that is shrinkflation. Uh, very often in, in supermarkets, when you're trying to buy stuff, the price stays the same, but they just reduce the amount of stuff that they put inside. So maybe it's it's still, um, you know, one pound for a pack of donuts, but the pack of donuts now has four donuts instead of five. 
or it's now still two pounds for a pack of Skittles, but the Skittles now has 25% fewer Skittles inside of it. Um, so that, that's a, a similar example where they, it looks like you're getting the same stuff, but actually they, they're still making, they're, they're basically increasing the price per volume of product, but the price per package has stayed the same. So it's, it's sort of a very genius, sort of clever Danos um, way of, of doing it. Yeah, it is very smart. I mean, and, and if you look at the way that products were formerly manufactured, I mean, products were made to last because they needed to last because they were harder to produce. And now because of how easy, you know, it is to produce a product, just going through a factory, there's a constant want of the producers to, produ to produce, 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 and get as much of it on the market as they can. And so this is, you know, of course been a driving force for this planned obsolescence because they because they can produce and they ha have that ability to make profit over a longer period of time um, because of how quickly they can put stuff on the market they want stuff to constantly be taken off the market so that they can increase the rate at which they're putting products on the market yeah it's just crazy the the massive mindset shift that like all of society seems to have experienced like you said everything used to be expected to last a lifetime it's not just everything that did last a lifetime but that that people expected it to last a lifetime think about like dresses were made with care by by seamstress and and every woman knew how to mend a dress or darn a sock or anything like this not that only women can do that as well no obviously we shouldn't hark back to old oh, society used to be amazing the obvious equality issues um in the past but that's how it that's how it was um household sewing machines were much more common sight but, the, you know, people still have sewing machines today. My sister has one. But the thing is that they found practical use. Like, they were just mending the stuff that they wore every day, and that was just a part of life. Whereas nowadays, it's like art and craft and upcycling. It's all very trendy and, and all of that. And you can imagine. And that's not to say that upcycling is bad at all. But the, the use of sewing machines is much more is, is much more trendy um, rather than, like, this is just what you do. Like, there's nothing surprising about it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with having a hobby in the textiles department. But it's just to say that people used to use this as an everyday thing. It wasn't really questioned at all. Also, anything resembling a machine was probably made out of cast iron. Never break toasters, electric fires, tape players, radios, blenders, fuse boxes, lamps, as well as um, easily, they'll be easily mendable if they did break. So replacement parts available, repair shops, also able to repair these things, whereas nowadays there are uh, legal barriers to independent repair shops uh, repairing products made by companies such as Apple, but uh, also other companies that that make things i mean and, and at the point where we are now we expect our products to only last for a few years because of the the constant trend in, in quality um production right now so like you buy your iphone knowing that in six seven years you're gonna need to replace it you buy your computer knowing that in four or five years you're gonna have to replace it and it's this shift in mindset that kind of enables companies to do that. So what they do at first is they, you know, introduce shorter lifespan products just a little bit, just a little bit, and then more and more, and you're not really realizing that you're that they're manipulating and creating this shift in mindset so that your expectations for product lifetime are lower and then you're, you know, they're able to manufacture them with a lower lifetime. And even more, there's this societal expectation do you have the sort of latest products as as a status symbol in a way? Yeah, I mean it's stigmatized. It's it's very it's very stigmatized to have like old product. Until last year, my parents had iPhone fours, which came out in. Let me look this up. iPhone 
Okay, they came out a long time ago, and they were very old. They still kind of worked, but they had you know sort of run out of software updates. Most apps no longer worked on them. It was June twenty fourth, twenty ten, was their release date. Oh my gosh! So yeah, they that had been ten years old, which is pretty long for a device. But why shouldn't a device easily last ten years? Why shouldn't it? Just with a few battery replacements and and continuous software updates. Why shouldn't they? And also, why should it be a social sort of laughing point that you know I joke with my friends? Oh. Do you know, like, like I'm, my parents have iPhone 4s. Like, like why, why should that be so stigmatized? And why shouldn't it be like, oh, wow, that's cool. Or even more, it's just like, yes, so what? Because it shouldn't really matter. These devices should still be reported and, and it shouldn't really be anything much of interest. Just, just like if you said, oh, my house is 10 years old, people would be like, huh, so what? It doesn't really matter how old your house is because, you know, whatever, most of the houses in Oxford are probably more than 100 years old, but they're still working fine because, you know, some of the internals have been upgraded. They've, electricity has been added. You know, the gas boiler has been replaced, but the whole structure remains. Whereas with phones, we'd expect it to break within a few years, even though the aluminium isn't corroding anytime soon, and then just be thrown out and replaced, which is ridiculous. Then there's this whole expectation that products, uh, the quality of products is going to be lower after some years. So then people all go... Well, you have this old phone, so it must be lower quality, and therefore, you must be poor. And you must, you know, there's like this whole stigma, social stigma. Totally. But when when the iPhone four came out, it was revolutionary. So why can't it still be just as good a phone now as it was then? And obviously, at some point, there are updates, and 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 it's you know there are better products. But it's like, do you really need that? You know, slightly better camera. Do you need the like like what are, what's the we, I think what, another thing is that we, we've lost track of the purpose of, of a lot of our products as we sort of started purchasing things for recreation is that like, do we really need a better camera on our phones? I mean, yes, at some point you probably do want a better camera on your phone. So maybe you do upgrade, but then do you need to get the, do you need to go from the 12 to the 13? You like, exactly. Like the quality, there's no real difference. They, they, may, they just make it look a little bit better. And then they put one more feature in and then all of a sudden it's the new rage. And it's like, we've gotten into this mindset where everything new is better, newer is better. And that's not necessarily the case. And if we go back to the house metaphor, nowadays new houses are being built with heat pumps like we discussed in ages ago in, a, in one of my energy episodes where we had a, a special guest come on who was an expert in heat pumps. Um, but if we think back to our house metaphor, as I was saying, my house is very old, but at some point we don't need to tear down the house and replace it with a new house because the new house has a heat pump. We just tear out the heating system from the house and replace the heating system with a heat pump system. You need to get larger radiators. You need to replace it with either a ground source or an air source sort of um, heating interface. You don't need to tear down the house and make a new house. So it's the same with a phone. Why can't you send your phone, your old iPhone 4, back to Apple and say, oh, hi, can you just put now put the A16 chip in this, which is which is the newest chip, without actually replacing the entire phone? Because I'm, I'm fine with all the external elements. I get that there are, there are some challenges in that, especially in terms of the software. How does this A16 chip interface with the really old RAM or anything like that? But you can imagine that sort of mindset we want to be trending towards rather than away from, which is the way we're currently going. Another big thing with, with older products as well, and like I mentioned earlier, like some companies do offer, you know, send in your older products, we'll give you a discount. Like that's, Apple does that. There's a couple other companies that do that. And it seems all, all good and well. But another thing which you should take note of is the fact that you can no longer give an iPhone 4 or an iPhone 5, I think even an iPhone 6 back to Apple. They won't take it. Yeah, they won't give you anything. Like, 
you won't get that discount. Why? You know, I, that's just something I think everyone should think about is why. And they, they can still get stuff out of the phone, but it's that they really, really want you to get the, they want to promote you. They want to promote this trend of you getting every four years or every five years a new phone. So if your phone's older than that, they're like, you didn't get the newer phone when you could have got the newer phone for a discount. So that's your problem. I think they, they want you to throw even a three, two, one year train. I think I think they want you to sign up for the thing where you just get, get a new phone every year and then send it your old one for 80% of the value or something like that. And that's why they decreased the value because originally their iPhone 4 would have had a pretty good trade in value. And so why is that trade in value decreased so much? Well, because they want to encourage you towards keeping it for less and less time. Yeah, I mean, we're also saying, we're also using this example of the iPhone a lot, but this happens in a lot of products, which is something you should just keep 100%. your mind. It's not limited to the iPhone. It's not limited to the light bulb. We're just using these as very baseline examples um, because they're very easy and, and obviously very well known. So probably easier for you guys to make those connections. So just keep in mind that this is happening on a large scale on a lot of products. If you think about um, what you were saying before about the social stigma, the companies are totally um, encouraging this because, it's, and I think actually uh, Apple is in some ways more guilty of this, just thinking about my limited knowledge of the tech market than others, because especially recently, the iPhone 12, the iPhone 13, the iPhone 14 have had very minor changes but they're still sticking to their yearly release schedule. They're still naming it as a new phone every year, whereas previously they might have called it, um, you know, the, the 5S was a thing, I think. Yeah, I had the I had the 5C or something like that. It was my first phone. And that's another thing is that is that it's it's also sort of stigmatized for you to get hand-me-down products as well, which is something that everyone wants in this with this current mindset to have a new product. So people having hand-me-downs is, is less and less common but what's the problem? Like when I first got a phone, I didn't need it for my, I didn't need a camera. I wasn't using, I was just using iMessages to message like my grandma and, and Oscar. And so like, what do I need, you know, an iPhone 13 for? So like at some point, yes, the phone started deteriorating. And, and of course, because of the planned obsolescence and like it wasn't updating. Um, and then I dropped it and broke it. So that was another thing. At some point, you do need to upgrade, but it's like, what's the whole problem with um, hand-me-downs as well is, is like, for your first phone, you don't need a brand new phone. You know, there's no real need for that. My first phone was a really old Nokia from my great-grandmother. There you go. And the, the reason that I didn't get a hand-me-down was for my first phone, because both of my parents' old phones were hand-me-downs themselves, but they were, they were so old that it probably wouldn't be really worth handing them down. Um, yeah, I, anyway, um, yeah, what I would say is that the companies are encouraging this social stigma by just creating these really, really gimmicks, like, that doesn't make any sense, these really gimmicky products. For example, when Apple released the iPhone 13, that was just completely unnecessary. They could have just bundled it together, like those new features together with the 14 in, in a two-year release update, but they couldn't because that would stagnate their sales, uh, sales, not sales, uh, stagnate their sales, and they knew that. But to think about the main thing that they changed with the 13 from the 12 was that they just got the like the little camera and they just shifted it across one. Like that's all they changed. Uh, just about there's like a tiny bit of other changes, but that was that was the main feature. But if you think about why they did that, it changes nothing about the functionality and everything about what it looks like. And so people can look at that and say, ah, you've got the iPhone 13, you've got the new phone. And, and there's very much a social thing attached to that. There's also 
the way that they add new colors every year or even halfway through the year they release the phone with a new color just because it doesn't change the functionality it just means that ah they want people to have the latest and supposedly the latest greatest thing but they want also people also want to show off that they have the latest greatest thing and that's sort of more important yeah i mean and that's the thing as well is that they're making it so easy for people to recognize that you have the latest and greatest thing um or latest and maybe not so greatest thing um because they change the design so slightly i mean like going from even the body of like seven to eight the iphone seven to the iphone eight all they did was change the back from metal to ceramic or whatever it's it's like a like more chic look um that you can pick up if, if you look at like you can't even see it through the case i mean all you can see the only difference you can pick up is like a surrounding the camera or like around that little iPhone symbol, like it's it's so small, and sometimes it's bigger than some. Like sometimes, oh, the the going from whatever the eight to the ten or whatever that that was, the the size increased, and so like the size increased, then they changed the positioning of the of the you know little cameras. So it's just like they want everything to seem so much bigger and better than it was, and they do a really good job of making it seem like that. Anyway, I think we should move on. Yeah, we should definitely move on. And this also links to fast fashion, which is an episode coming out hopefully soon. Uh, another thing in this space of advertising is devices actually pushed in our face by companies, like saying, you want this, you want this, get this new phone, look how cool it is, whatever. Whereas what would happen or what would be ideal is that, you know, uh, my phone's finally like, it's finally limiting the sort of amount that I can do with it, or I need this phone to offer me more in terms of what, what the actual functionality it offers. Um, for example, you know, maybe I've got Korean photography, I need a, b- a bigger camera, or um, I need to be able to get higher Wi-Fi speeds for my job, any any number of that. Those are both terrible examples, but you get the idea. And then at that point, we could research what phone do, we, do I want to get, whereas the, the opposite is happening. They're like, you know what, you need this, you need this, you need this feature, you need this feature. You know you need that feature, you know, you better come buy a new phone. When, rather than Because rather than just letting us think, it basically creates an artificial want because we don't actually want that feature, but then they tell us the feature exists, and, and they also tell us other people have the feature, then we actually we really want that feature, something like Memoji. Maybe, I don't know, people, people switch to Apple because, wait a second, I can get moving emoji based on my face? Yeah, it's, it's a bit strange. But if you, we need to keep moving on, but if you want um, some more talk about why advertising is actually an environmental issue, uh, listen to episode 32 where I interviewed Dex Twycross about degrowth. It's a fantastic episode, one of my most, most popular to date as well. So make sure you give it a listen. Sorry, one second. What is it, Baba? Uh, I need like 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 25, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, sorry, Baba. Uh, sorry, um... My dad made breakfast, but... Okay, so the next issue is that devices are not given updates for very long. I'll be very quick on this because we mentioned it earlier. Uh, essentially, especially on phones, lesser extent on computers, but I'll talk about that in a sec. You're, you're tied to this one manufacturer, especially with Android phones, it's tend to be a smaller manufacturer to give you updates, and they don't tend to give you updates for very long. My phone, I, I don't even know how long, but it's like only a few years. Samsung's maybe got like three, four years, and Apple's giving you like five, six, but that's like the best of the best, whereas on... Windows, like, I, I, I don't know, but if you got a Windows computer in 2015 in, with a Windows 10 installed, then that would receive updates until 2025. Um, and older operating systems, even longer. 
Um, but it's a bit ridiculous. I got my computer in 2016. Um, and now from 2025, in three years, it's it's going to stop receiving updates, which is a bit annoying because I'd, especially now that I just use it as a desktop um, because the battery's dead and I can't get a replacement part, <clears throat> planned obsolescence. Um, it does mean that at some point I'm going to need to get rid of it or install Linux on it, both of which are not good options because the podcast editing software doesn't work on Linux. Linux, on the other hand, is open source. It doesn't have corporate interest. Well, it does have corporate interest, but not in terms of that sense. Um, and with any Linux system, you can get upgrades ad infinitum. And Linux supports really, really old devices. Even now, they're only just starting to rescind support for 32-bit devices, and there are still distributions for Linux you can get that will work with 32-bit. Two, two other things, or no, one more thing. Uh, more and more devices depend on security updates because more and more devices that were previously not smart aren't now smart. Like if your fridge is suddenly vulnerable to hacking your whole house, that's an issue, right? And, and now you're going to get a new fridge every three years because the smart fridge company is going bust. There you go. Um, yeah. So our next point is that manufacturers make it deliberately harder and significantly harder to repair products um, after you know a given amount of time, or even from the start in, in some in a lot of cases actually. I mean, biggest problem is that a lot of companies don't even offer any uh, repair option. Like a lot of things that you get off Amazon, there is no option for repair. Um, and sometimes you can get parts to repair your stuff. And sometimes you can, and sometimes even if you can buy the parts, it's significantly more expensive, even on products where they do offer sort of replacement parts. So then it's just more, so it's, in the end, it's just a better option for you to get the newest um, thing, which is another trap that companies lay, which is like even companies that do offer repair, like Apple and some other telecommunication companies. And stuff, what they do is that they have, they do have options now. Um, Apple does have options to buy replacement parts. I mean, you, and you can buy some replacement parts from non-Apple producers, but there's options to buy replacement parts for the back of your phone, for the little camera, for the screen. But, you know, it ends up being so expensive that it's just like, I may as well get the iPhone 14. Apple's repair stuff is a bit ridiculous because recently they've said, oh, we're working towards repairability and we've got this new self-service repair program where you can repair like four things only from the latest iPhone. And it'll cost you so much that it's actually just cheaper to get us to repair it for you. Um, but, you know, they do allow you to rent the tools and that sort of thing. But it is extremely devious, the sort of thing they're doing. But also, laptops um, are getting less and less repairable. It's harder to upgrade the internals. Um, and they're also doing stuff like uh, not using screws. So I think my laptop screws, you could just unscrew the base and, like, see the internals. Whereas with phones with and newer laptops, new thinner laptops, it's got, like, a one-use glue. So once you, like, cut through the glue, it's no longer sticky um, or they'll also just like weld together with ultrasonic welding is what John's written here. Um, to, and that means it's very hard to put it back together. They also say things like your warranty is voided if you if you try and upgrade your thing or touch anything inside. Um, or even even further, they'll they'll say stuff like last of the managers with like scary warnings like this is not user serviceable. It's very hazardous to take it apart. Uh, and you know this is also slightly, a significant of an issue in America with how easy it is to sue anyone for anything. I'm sure companies are very scared of being sued for sued for uh, if people get injured trying to take their stuff away. Really, it's, it's obviously not their fault. The company's fault if someone's injured trying to tamper with it. But I think there, there's an too, it's too easy to sue someone in America. But that is something of a different issue. Uh, in the UK, it's much harder to just start a lawsuit for any reason. Whereas in the UK, sorry, in the US, you can literally just sue anyone at any time for any reason. Um, and that even there aren't that many anti-slap laws, but 
uh, yeah, sorry, a bit of a tangent. Well, well, one of the other big problems with this is that like you can, and with some products, especially like the higher tech products, you can't replace parts like what Otto was saying with parts that aren't manufactured by them, even if they're not offering repair services. So then maybe you end up putting in like, I think Oscar's sister got a new phone. You put in a new battery that's not made by Apple. And then all of a sudden the phone, the functionality is like lower, the, they give you warnings and it's like, really, what's the big deal? Yeah, so what happened on my sister's phone is that she she bought a secondhand phone from, for, or, or it was bought for her for her birthday, she bought a secondhand phone from from an online store which was you know, had a good reputation and specifically she bought one that said it would have at least 80% battery health. So she got the phone, she went on to settings to check if the battery health was actually 80%, but all it said was like, unable to verify if this is a genuine Apple part. And it just wouldn't show her anything about the battery health, which is a bit ridiculous, but there are worst cases if you try and tinker even further with a phone that it will really disable a lot of features. So there was an example where someone tried to modify an, an iPhone to work with USB-C a superior standard to, the, to Apple's Lightning connector. Uh, and they said it worked. And, and I think they were able to sell it to someone for quite a high price because everyone wanted a USB-C iPhone. But, it, you know, if you, you wouldn't really be able to do much with the software. You wouldn't be able to update or anything. And it, it, if you did, it would just break because you've just tried to make a minor tinker. Whereas if you had a much more open operating system like Linux on a computer, then you could just do about anything and, and Linux would just work with the new components without complaining at all. So it's clearly part of a predatory strategy by Apple to try and make it seem as if their repair services are the only ones that, are, that really work when they're way overpriced and clearly making them a massive amount of money. Yeah, and then um, our final point here is just the massive amounts of e-waste that come off of a lot of modern products from our from some of our cars to phones to computers and i we're again we're talking a lot about phones and computers i mean even other electronics and actually the, the one of the worst ones is 20 percent of e-waste is classified as temperature exchange equipment basically stuff that uses refrigerant gases like acs and fridges the really dangerous thing about this from an environmental perspective is that these refrigerant gases, if they're not disposed properly, will leak into the atmosphere and they're thousands to hundreds of thousands of times more potent um, than CO2. So for like one gram of, of one of these F gases that they're known because they contain fluorine, it can literally warm the earth 100,000 times more than a single molecule of carbon dioxide or a gram of carbon dioxide or a mole of carbon dioxide or however you want to quantitatively chemistry the thing. So overall, it seems society is heading in a very dangerous direction. Something almost akin to the horrifying consumerism seen in Brave New World, a novel by Aldous Huxley. You're listening to Fighting Failure. This is episode 35. all about planned obsolescence, e-waste, and right to repair. If you've enjoyed it so far, it'd mean the world to us if you shared it with someone who might like it too. If you'd like to make a financial contribution to the continued running of the show, our Patreon link is in the show notes. Now, on to the solutions.
So right to repair is ultimately one of the best solutions, I think, to planned obsolescence. It's not a structural solution in the same way, but it is a legal sort of government initiative that will uh, enshrine into law the idea that companies cannot discourage self-repair of their products and they also need to make their products more repairable and furthermore provide replacement parts and tools at fair prices so that people and independent repair shops can repair products at reasonable prices for and for uh, for the device's lifetime so for maybe 10 years these replacement parts need to be available and that could be increased as well and this doesn't necessarily remedy um, companies from uh, having this mindset of ultimately just making uh, you know more growth and more growth and more growth and more products and more products but it's a very useful safeguard against that and, and it means that consumers will still be able to keep their products for longer than companies might otherwise want um, and ultimately this is not something that we can rely on companies to do themselves because it's not in their economic interests um, but it's something that needs to be enshrined into law and I think that's that process is already starting yeah again like like we mentioned I mean a lot of these companies are legally, I think, required to maintain the best interest of those who um, hold their stocks. Yeah, and so, of course, the those who the shareholders want an an increase in profit for obvious reasons, and so then they're obliged to make sure that they're, you know, maintaining this profit increase on a yearly basis, which is not a great thing obviously and that's what causes the whole problem so it's it'll be very difficult to, to create this right to repair and this uh long these longer lasting products but this is something that i think should be like oscar said enshrined in law and there, there should be some legal obligation to 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 produce yeah exactly i mean like we said government incentives and 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 law enforcement is one of is one of the best ways i mean it's a very anthropocentric view on the whole thing but it, it is a very good it's one of the best ways and one of the only ways that we can sort of limit our impact. Because governments could have such a much, governments or large organizations have to make the change because as much as we individuals can, can try and help uh, and, and our impact is insignificant. Uh, and obviously when we encourage more and more people like we are with this podcast to, to make a difference, it does make a difference. And, and for example, with, with minimal inv- uh, you know, legal input, meat eating in the UK has decreased by 17%. So that's an example of and have how individual action really does matter, but government action matters even more because a government with a with a stroke of a pen, okay, a bit more than a stroke of a pen, but get my idea, can make a massive, wide-sweeping change that, like, in statistics, will show as like a downtick on that graph, and so that's what's so important. Anyway, um, that's that's right to repair. It's it's really quite a simple concept, but it just needs to be enshrined into law and it needs to be practiced widely. Um, so that we can regain autonomy over the devices which we purchase with our money from companies. I think it does just make quite a lot of sense. The next solution uh, is modular devices. So um, one example of this is the framework laptop. Literally every part can just be interchanged without without much more than a screwdriver. Yeah, on the website of, of this framework laptop, you can find replacements for every component. If you break something or if it breaks itself or just if you just want an upgrade, maybe you need a more powerful CPU because you know software's gotten more demanding as it does, you can literally just buy a new motherboard without buying a new casing, without buying a new keyboard, without buying a new trackpad, without buying a new screen. But you can still upgrade the internals if you want. So it's it's very future-proofed. And then you could also like repurpose your motherboard or sell it secondhand. And that's a much more sustainable way of doing things. Yeah. And then to add to that, just longer lasting product updates. So 
being able to update for a longer period of time, you know, also increases the lifespan of a product because it, you know, you start, it stops deteriorating at a better rate and you, you get the, the more modern features that you might want on your phone. Because imagine how many screens, for example, being thrown away that were perfectly good just because the thing that they were attached to was no longer. And essentially, that's what modular devices solve. They only, you only replace the faulty components. Uh, there's also some, there have been some ideas for a modular smartphone, but that's much smaller to do because smartphones need to be more waterproof, more drop resistant, all those sorts of things. But there, there are absolutely ways that people or companies could make the smartphones more repairable without sacrificing those things. Um, in, in a way, it's just about the intent. If companies intend to make something repairable, or rather than intending to whip up the consumer by making them buy new things more often. The, the next solution, and this is one that I'm quite a fan of, is this EU initiative for a common charging connector. Essentially, by 2024, all, uh, all electronic devices which have a USB port, um, which includes lightning, which includes micro USB, all of those sorts of things, need to have a USB-C port for charging. Uh, this is specifically for charging. And it essentially means that people can just have one USB-C uh, charger and one USB-C brick for all their products because they're all going to be charged by USB-C. Think, don't think this includes laptops. Um, but for stuff like phones, cameras, all that, iPods, if those still exist, anything like that, it's going to need to use the common charging connector. Um, it is rumored, however, that Apple is just going to skip USB-C entirely and just become portless, which means that then they don't need to follow the rules. And then, you know, they just use MagSafe, which is obviously bad. MagSafe is a bulky connector. That's not good for consumers. And it is not powered by USB-C because you've got, like, this massive MagSafe puck that you have to stick onto the back of a phone. Just to throw more dirt on Apple, probably unnecessarily, you know, one of the reasons it's, it's theorized that Apple has refused for so long to switch to USB-C when basically every other manufacturer has is that they profit massively off having a monopoly on the Lightning ecosystem so that they, they make money off every charger or every accessory that comes with the Lightning, which is Lightning compatible, which means it's compatible with iPhones. Um, and, and that's basically forcing companies to work with them and give them lots of money. It's the same with MagSafe, which means if they skip USB-C and switch to MagSafe, they will maintain their monopoly. And that's probably why they do it, just for the ching ching. Um, but that's not so great. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about how batteries are, are the component that fails most often, essentially, and cause people to throw away otherwise perfectly good devices. Uh, something that absolutely needs to be implemented, not necessarily to counter planned obsolescence as such, but just for environmental reasons, is to have much more easily available recycling for batteries. They're difficult to recycle, but they need to be recycled because they 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 are going to be the the thing that holds up the electrical revolution when we when we replace fossil fuels mostly with electricity. We're going to need so many more batteries, and if we're just throwing away all the precious metals that go into making batteries just like that, that's going to be really difficult. Yeah, and also there's large amounts of e-waste that come from the batteries and, and a lot of single-use batteries, which are, of course, becoming less frequent, but are still used in a ton of products. And the problem is then that we're just getting a battery, battery acid, throw that away, chuck that away. Of course, that's going to cause tons of problems. And there's aluminum and like there's all types of problems um, that come from these disposable batteries and also batteries that have a very short lifespan, even if they're not disposable just know that they are disposable. It's just their way of tricking you into thinking that it's a non-disposable battery um, because they give it a slightly longer life lifespan than it would have otherwise. But really, I mean, this is one of the biggest drivers of e-waste, which of course, this point meshes very nicely with our next point, which is fair trading programs and recycling. Easier recycling of these batteries and 
and and other parts with rare metals that could or should very easily be recycled to reduce the need to mine for more of these limited products and to also limit the cost. I mean, of course, recycled products would limit the cost, but they're just as good in, in, a, in a lot of cases, not in all cases. And so, of course, fair trading programs and recycling um, is one of the best things that we can have um, as a step forward, but that's, that's a shift that we need to see in the companies. And again, that's going to be very hard. We've talked a lot about how predatory these trading programs can be. Um, they also, we've mentioned a lot about how they only give you stuff for the latest devices, but they also give you credit. So they're not actually giving you money. They're just giving you a discount, essentially. And given how high their profit margins are, the discount isn't actually costing them that much. Um, whereas if they actually gave you a cash back, then they would have to make it much smaller. Um, so in a way, it's a win-win, but it does, in a way, it also isn't because it does force you to buy from that retailer that is giving you that trading credit. Uh, a fairer system would give you actual cash based on the value that they can extract as a recycling company from, from your device rather than credit from most likely reselling your device if it's in good condition um, after a bit of refurbishment. Yeah, I mean, back to battery recycling quickly. My idea for places with curbside recycling is that like you, the council gives you like a stash of red bags. Then if you have the batteries that need recycling, just put it in a red bag, like close the red bag and put it on top of your bin. Then it'll get collected separately. But, you know, it depends ultimately on where how it's implemented. It will depend on where, because places like Amsterdam don't have curbside recycling. Maybe you have like a little pool bin, whatever. It's really not that important. But the importance is... The important thing is that it happens. Um, the last solution would be subsidies for second-hand products and refurbishing. For example, uh, we could say that it costs, there's a, a larger tax on new electronic devices and no tax on refurbished second-hand ones. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that system could be gamed in some way. I need to think about it more. But. Yeah, I mean, just breaking down as well that, that social stigma against second-hand products, um, that's a big step forward. Yeah, ultimately, you can't legislate for that, but it's very important that it happens. I mean, it's something that you can take part in by just trying trying to actively shift your mindset. But this is really going to be difficult to, to take part in as a whole if companies don't stop manipulating their products in such a way that they sort of force this mindset upon us. Um, and so that is our final point, I think that. And so with that, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye. This has been Fighting Failure, episode 35. This episode was written and produced by Oscar Archibald. Additional content input from John Lucas. Co-hosted by Hisham Kanan. Support us on Patreon. Links in the show notes. Okay, that's done. Stop recording.